humidity has dipped down to almost nothing. So it's, it's wreaking havoc on my voice, but I'm so glad we're here. It is the 21st of November, 2020. And it's just so wonderful to, to be here this morning and to be able to share with you. We have been talking about the chapter entitled How It Works. And in the chapter How It Works, what we're going to be examining are the two most misunderstood steps, three and four. And we're going to look at these steps and hopefully, to the best of my ability, God will enable me through Y words to simplify these steps for you so that they will never hold the mystery and the intimidation that they have held into many, many over the decades. These are simple, easy steps, very discernible steps, and there's no reason to fear them, and there's no reason to overplay them, and there's, there's a Yiddish word called ungebluzzled. What does ungebluzzled mean? Ungebluzzled means overblown. Kind of sounds like overblown if you think about it, ungebluzzled, kind of overblown, and that's what it means in Yiddish, is overblown, and what we're going to do in the course of the next several Saturdays is we're going to break these steps down and we're going to simplify to the best of our ability the, um, the working of these steps so that they don't have to be complicated anymore in our minds. They're not really complicated. They're just often complicated in our minds. We left off last week on page 58, and we're going to pick that up in just a few minutes. But as is my want, we always do a little bit of a review so that we can sort of hit the ground running. I call this the entrance ramp to the highway. And Bill was not at the office in Newark, New Jersey on Walnut Street when he wrote most of this chap, when he wrote any of this chapter, he amended it uh, in Newark, but he wrote the chapter at 182 Clinton Street in Brooklyn. And it was very late at night. It was the depths of the depression. The book was started in 37 and 38, published in April of 39. So we're talking the deep, deep depression. And Bill was out of work. He was newly sober. He was out of work. And he was up and his knees were propped up and he had his legal pad and his pencil and he knew that it was time to codify the program of action that the 60 to 100 of them had followed up to that point. Bill talks about we are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. But remember that Bill was a salesman too. The number was a lot closer to 60 than it was to 100, but he knew that 100 sounded better. But anyway, that aside, he wrote the chapter and he said that the pencil seemed to have a life of its own as it scattered across the pages. And within about 20 to 30 minutes, how it works was written. He never set out to write 12 steps. He just set out to write steps that would close up some of the loopholes that the alcoholics had been jumping through in the original six-step program. And we're going to talk about the six-step program today as well. So we'll kind of show you where these steps come from. 
he was very happy with what he had done, but the fellowship forced some changes on him and the fellowship forced some changes on him because some of the things that he originally put in the chapter, like on your knees. And if, if, if by now you haven't come to this conclusion, reread the book or throw it out, they made him get rid of some of that stuff. And so what happened was as it metamorphosized, it became more and more palatable to the alcoholic, to the compulsive overeater, the drug addict, the what, what sex addict, love addict, gambler, whatever it is, whoever it is rather, that picks up the book to use it. And this book has restored more addicts back to society and put together more families and restored more human beings back to society than all other methods combined. And I believe, and I will never vary from this belief, I believe that God wrote the book. The book is one of the most important spiritual books ever written. It is a book that will live forever. And 20,000 generations from now, addicts will still be recovering using these methods. The famous philosopher Scott Peck once said that ultimately the 20th century will be known for three things in the millennium that follow. 3,000 years from now, what will the 20th century be known for? It will be known for the Wright brothers' first successful flight at Kitty Hawk. It will be known for the atomic slash um, computer age. And the third thing that it will be known for is the development of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous found in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous that we're holding in our hands. So as we look at these uh, pages, as we look at these, at these things, we're looking at the work, in my opinion, of the man upstairs. If the man upstairs is not palatable for you, be you an atheist, be you agnostic, then a power greater than ourselves. I'm not inflicting my view of a higher power on anyone. I can only share from my perspective that it was a divine inspiration. Why don't we agree on that, that it was divinely inspired through pain and through the misery of human beings. And this is what gave birth to this most wonderful, wonderful book. We talked last week about where the steps come from. Step one obviously comes from Dr. William Duncan Silkworth. And Dr. Silkworth describes in the doctor's opinion, the powerless condition of mind and body. And when he says powerless, what he means by that is we lack power. Lack of power was our dilemma. And it means that I cannot control the amount of food I eat once I start, if I'm eating pizza or ice cream or whatever. Once that substance is inside of me, I will eat more than I had intended to because of an actual physical craving to eat more of the same. And he also describes in the doctor's opinion that most alcoholics drink, men and women drink because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I remember many, many years ago, I am not a drinker. If I've had 10 alcoholic drinks in my life, that would be overestimating it. I took a sip one time of something called a martini. And they were, some guys were chiding me into it. I says, I've never tasted anything that horrific, horrible, 
putrid, vile in my entire life. I would rather drink the urine of a mule than drink a martini. It is the most vile thing. It, it really, it's what it tastes like is if you've, I don't know how it is for, for women. If you've ever imagined what aqua velva or Old Spice aftershave would taste like if you drank it, that may be what it tastes like. And they were, these other three gentlemen were laughing at me and they looked at each other and said, martini? I didn't even know it had a taste. They throw them down because they like the effect produced by them. And they don't have that effect on me. The only effect it had on me was to say, yucky poo poo, this is horrible. I never ever want to drink this again. And I never have. But now if we're talking Almond Joy, we're talking Chips Ahoy, we're talking, you know, we're talking Captain Crunch. Now you got a whole different discussion on your hands. Now, now I'm ready to, now I'm ready to do business. Okay, so if I can't eat because of the allergy and I can't keep from eating because of this effect, this mental twist drives me into the, into the food. Why does it do that? In search of an effect. Why do I need this effect? Because the brain is uncomfortable when the emotions build up. If alcohol is a symptom of our disease, what is the disease? It is the buildup of human emotions making us so uncomfortable that we cannot stand the pain of not eating. Let me say that again, because that's critical to our understanding of why we do the steps and what it is that we're embarking on when we do them. The pain of not eating in a compulsive overeater is unbearable. That's why diets don't work. I'm having cataract surgery on the 4th and the 18th of December. And when I went to the eye surgeon, not the eye doctor, but the eye surgeon, as I did last week, and I scheduled these various surgeries, he and I were talking very quickly. And he said something to me and whatever he said to me, and I don't remember what it was. He said something to me about, am I diabetic? And I said, no. And for whatever reason, I spit out the fact that I'm so grateful not to be because at one time in my life, I was over 700 pounds. And he looked aghast and he said, oh, I've got to put you in touch with my wife. She's a weight loss specialist and she has additives that people like you could really use. What kind of vitamins are you using? What kind of additives are you using? And I said, none of the above. And he said, well, how do you lose weight without additives? I said, I let my higher power do the work. And he looked at me as if I was a cross between a zebra, a camel, and a largemouth bass. He looked at me as if I had just escaped from the insane asylum because he couldn't imagine for the life of him how anybody would recover from compulsive overeating without his wife's magic additives. And I'm sure his wife is adorable and well-intentioned, and I'm sure she's just fabulous. And I'm sure the products that she sells are just lovely, but they're not going to help a person like me. But he, he didn't get it. And you know what? I don't have to make him get it. It's not my job. It's not my job. If you, uh, Bill Wilson said at the end of his life, he said, for those who understand 
No explanation is necessary. For those who do not understand, none is plausible. You can't make someone understand what it's like to be powerless over Girl Scout cookies or whatever, you know, whatever it is we like. But it's the buildup of human emotions which makes living so unbearably painful, so unbearably, unbelievably painful that we will do anything to get rid of the pain. And the brain knows that a Sara Lee brownie or a sheet of them will make, I never look and see that I'm gonna eat the sheet. I'll get to that in a minute. And I eat a brownie, which for me is half the pan or the whole pan, whatever the hell it is. And I eat that in search of relief from that pain. And for about nine seconds, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and ships at sea, for about nine seconds, that pain is gone. It's just gone. And my brain says, I told you, why don't you listen to me? I told you this would make you feel better. And then the horror, the pall of remorse, the curtain of shame and guilt and fear and horrific, horrific self-loathing is upon me because by then I am shoving in my mouth because of the physical allergy. And that allergy is triggered by the eating of that food. I eat the food to give me relief from the pain and then the food turns against me and starts to do the killing work of the illness. And in chapter three, we're again taught that the disease is permanent. There is no way that I will be able to say to you, hey, I'm not just recovered, I'm cured. That is a false statement. And no matter how long I'm abstinent, and at this point it's 21 and a half years, thank God. If I'm abstinent a thousand years, I will never ever be cured. Now, I wanna touch on something before we move ahead because this is important. Some of the people that are listening to this are not compulsive overeaters in the same way I am. They get this effect from restricting the amount of food they eat. They are what we call restrictors or anorexic. They are anorexic. They get this effect from restricting. Most are both but many are just restrictors. So they get this effect by restricting the amount of food they eat. Will these steps give them the relief? Yes, it will. Because what the purpose of the steps ultimately is, is to affect a spiritual awakening as the result of working the steps so that the steps will do for me slowly what the food did for me quickly. I'm gonna say that again. The reason that we work the steps is to affect a spiritual awakening as the result of the endeavor so that the steps will do for me slowly what the food did for me quickly, but with none of the side effects. Now, we also have on the line today, I'm sure, because there's 101 of us right now, we also have on the line people who are bulimic. I'm not 
bulimic, but there are people. And bulimics fall into three categories. There is uh, regurgitation bulimia, where they force themselves to vomit. There is exercise bulimia, where they purge through massive amounts of exercise. And then there is laxative bulimia, where it shoots out the other side. And I know of a person, and, and, and I use this person as an example. She lives in California. I know another one that would fit this category lives in Colorado. And they are like movie stars. If you looked at these people, you would never look at them and say, oh my God, these are people that have an eating disorder. They're stunning. I mean, physically, they're stunning. And you look at these people and you say, what possible problem would they ever have with food? And you know what, since I know these people, I know that even though they may not look obese, they are gutter, back alley, dumpster diving, garbage can, compulsive overeaters. And if you saw them compulsively overeating, they would look like any of the, any of the rest of us. They are back alley, compulsive, gutter, dumpster diving compulsive overeaters, although they just don't appear obese. So anyway, so the first step comes from Dr. Silkworth. And the second step comes from the Oxford group movement. What did the Oxford group movement do to give us the second step? Ebby Thatcher knew that there was a spiritual solution to compulsive overeating, but he didn't know the problem. Bill Wilson, because he knew Dr. Silkworth, he knew that there was a problem with the allergy and the uh, mental twist, but he didn't have a solution for it. And so when Ebby and Bill sat together on that dreary late November evening in 1934, the confluence, what is a confluence? It's when rivers run together and rivers running together always make a stronger, larger river. And so as the confluence came together, Bill Wilson knew the problem, didn't know the solution. Ebby knew the solution, didn't know the problem. Bill Wilson, was he the first person to put it together? We don't know, but here's what we can be sure of. He's going to be the first person in the history of the world that is going to take the information and move it forward. And the rest of the steps, 2 through 11, through 2 through 12, sorry, come to us from the Oxford Group movement. And the Oxford Group movement manifested in these steps through the work of Sam Shoemaker. And Sam Shoemaker was the Episcopalian minister at the Cavalry Mission in New York City. And he was the front man for the Oxford Group in New York. And he taught the boys, hold on. <sighs> Sorry. He taught the boys that there were four impediments to God and that in order for someone to reach God, they would have to overcome these four impediments. What is an impediment? An impediment is something that either stops or slows progress. It can be a speed bump or it can be a wall. 
but these four impediments are going to give us steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, the guts of our program. Let's take a look quickly at what they are. They're too important to ignore and too important not to review. Even though we spent time on it last week, we're gonna spend a couple of minutes on it this week, but I won't go into as much detail because you have the recording of last week at your disposal. The four impediments to God are, number one, a resentment that you will not let go of. And that became step four. If you have a resentment that you absolutely will not let go of, you will not recover. Let me say that again, because this may save your life. If you have a resentment that you will not let go of, I didn't say could not, because if you cannot, but you want to, we have ways of helping you. But if you don't want to get rid of this resentment, you will not recover because that is self-will run riot. A resentment that you will not let go of became step four. A secret that you will not tell. Now, when I say a secret that you will not tell, does that mean I have to tell you that my uh, bank account number is one, two, three, four, five, six, and my PIN is... Uh, 8, 9, uh, 10, 11, and 12. No, that's not what that means. But that means I have to sit down and tell someone what I wrote down in step four. I have to share it with another person. And if I'm not willing to do that, and I'm not willing to do it honestly, notice I didn't say perfectly. I said, honestly, I will not recover. So impediment one, a resentment that you will not let go of. Number two, a secret that you will not tell. Number three is a vicarious thrill that you will not stop. What's a vicarious thrill? A vicarious thrill is lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, all those things which make us feel almost as good as an Almond Joy bar. Oh, I love a good piece of gossip, don't you? Because gossiping makes you and me on the same side. And I'm insecure and afraid by my nature. So I want to gossip because, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. So I want to gossip with Maria about Nancy J. Did you see what Nancy did the other day? Oh, that damn Nancy. What a jerk she is. And Maria, if we're in this sort of collusion, yeah, I, I don't like Nancy either. Oh, that Nancy. Blah, blah, blah. So me and Maria are now friends, but we're not really, not really. It's just something very phony, very false. And then when I see Nancy, I'll say, oh, did you see what Maria did the other day? Oh, what a dope. Well, that's a vicarious thrill, and I have to be willing to stop it. And the fourth of the impediments is a restitution that you will not make. Now, remember, boys and girls, that amends is AA language, and restitution, which means the same thing, is Oxford group language. So Sam Shoemaker did not use the word amends. He uses the word restitution. He, uh, so again, to review, the four impediments are a resentment that you will not let go of, step four, a secret that you will not tell, step five, a vicarious thrill that you will not stop, six and seven, and a restitution that you will not make, eight and nine. 
Okay. And then what we're going to do today is we're going to pick up our work on page 58 at the bottom of the page where it says, remember. So I'll give you a second to get to that point in the book. It says, remember, okay? Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. Stop right there. We are, no matter what country you are listening from, no matter what your nationality, your race, your creed, your color, we are a group of people that have been lied to our entire lives. I was told as a little boy, and I'm sure you were told very similar stuff, you need discipline, young man. If you had discipline, you'd lose weight. And if you lost weight, you'd be great. And then I was told, you need to push yourself away from the table. If you loved your mother, you wouldn't eat that way. Oh, if you loved your father, you wouldn't eat that way. Oh, you must really hate yourself. You have no self-esteem. Oh, you, you are really in for it, young man. You need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Anybody here that hasn't been told that stuff, I'd be shocked. And you know what? It's a lie. I tried pulling myself up by the bootstraps. I didn't have boots on and I didn't know what a bootstrap was, but I tried pulling myself up by the bootstraps. I tried pushing myself away from the table. I tried dieting from the time I was five and six years old. They scared me. The doctors scared, scared me. The rabbis scared me. The, my parents scared me. My, the friends of my parents scared me. The kids scared me. And they sent me a message that if I was fat, I was existentially wrong and stupid and not worthy of sucking air out of the atmosphere. That as long as I'm fat, I am a worthless piece of dung. That's the message that I got as a child. That as long as I was fat, I wasn't worth anything. And here we're telling you, you cannot do this by yourself without help. It is too much for us. I had to stop trying to do this on my own, by myself. It is not a crime to need help. It is not a crime to ask for help. I see people every day helping other people, caring about other people. Why not I? And I can't do this by myself, but that is so foreign to my nature. But there is one, notice your capital letters. I'm at the top of page 59, but there is one who has all power, that one is God, may you find him now. And in every word that's capitalized, he is referring to God. Half measures availed us nothing. If love is a reed, then recovery is a vending machine. And I don't know any better way to describe this than by saying love, or, uh, love is a reed. Recovery is a vending machine. What the heck does that mean? If I want something out of a vending machine and it costs a dollar and I put in 99 cents, what am I gonna get out of that vending machine? 
nothing. I will be lucky, lucky if I get my 99 cents back. I am either going to be in for the dollar or I'm out. I'm either doing this or I'm not. I'm either working the steps, I'm either doing this deal or I am not. And so what I have to know is there are no half measures here that are going to work. Half measures avail me nothing. I'm either in or I'm out. And there's no middle ground whatsoever. This is absolute language like we covered on the previous page. I am going to, I'm in or I'm out. I don't have to do it perfectly except for step one, but I'm in or I'm out. We asked, we stood at the turning point. We asked his protection, notice his is in capitals, with his protection and care with complete abandon. Now let's take a word abandon and let's look at it for just a minute. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, a beautiful community in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I know some of you have visited here and some of you have, have liked it, but <clears throat> there are homes right now where I live where there's nobody home. There's nobody home. And if I went to those homes right now, I would see beautifully landscaped lawns and I would see flowers and I would see furniture in the window and I would see evidences of life so that I know that this home is gonna be returned to, that it has not been abandoned, but it, they're just temporarily away. There are other homes where there's no furniture inside. There's no for sale sign. There's nobody that's tended to the lawn in a very long time. There's no flowers. Everything's dead. Everything is just ugly and just unattended to. And you can see that that house has been abandoned. I must abandon. I must abandon everything that I think I know. I must detach completely and forever everything that I think I know, everything that I think I can bring in here from my experiential base and move forward. Everything that I think I know can kill me. And every day of my life, I get a phone call. And what does this person at the other end of the do? Be they, be they male, be they female, doesn't matter what they are. This is what they do. They give me their dossier. They give me their resume. They give me their credentials. I've been in AA and I've been in Al-Anon and I've been in CODA and I've been in this and I've been in that. So I don't need to work the steps again. I just need you to help me with my food. And they never like my response. My response is, if those things were so effective, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I must be ready and willing and able to abandon, completely abandon anything I think I know and move forward.
The other dossier I get is I've been in how, I've been in 90 day, I've been in this. I'm not denigrating those things. Those things are wonderful. Those, I'm, I have no judgment about them. I have no opinion on them. I didn't cast any aspersions on those things. Those things are wonderful and they help a lot of people. But the person at the other end of the line is obviously in the food or they wouldn't be calling. And so I say, you have to abandon what you think you know. You have to abandon what you think you you uh, what you think you've done. What you've done, what you think you know, means nothing. It means nothing. We have to start from here. Now, instead of going through the twelve steps, because it says here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. What I'm going to do, because you can read these on your own, you don't need me to read them to you. Three in the fourth edition, and I'm going to talk for just a minute about where these steps come from. And this comes from a story called "He Sold Himself Short." the story of Earl Treat. And Earl founded AA in Chicago with Sylvia Kaufman, who was from Evanston. And Earl founded all the meetings in Chicago that are currently still going at the Lincoln Park Alano Club. And he formed all the meetings or most of the meetings that became the downtown meetings. And Sylvia Kaufman, who was the co-founder in Chicago, she founded a lot of the meetings that are still going in the Evanston, Skokie, Wilmette area, north side of Chicago, and so on. So he becomes, he and Sylvia, which is the keys to the kingdom, they become very important to me because I'm from Chicago and I always want to give uh, credit to a woman who she's no longer with us now. Her name was Marilyn. She lived in Highland Park, Illinois, and she actually brought OA, Phyllis A and Marilyn, but Marilyn and Phyllis brought OA to Chicago. Let me just get a little sip. It's going to be 88 here today and it's, I should have turned on the air conditioner. I was a yutz. Okay. Okay. They brought OA to Chicago and the very first meetings in Chicago were at a place called Potawatomi Park. And the reason in, in the field house and um, then we, then Ravenswood hospital and then the rest is history. But the bottom line is I always want to remind you that every time we come to, and Marilyn's no longer around, she's no longer with us, but every time we come into a meeting, we are walking in here on the shoulders of giants and every person here owes a debt. And we're going to talk about that a lot more as we get to step 12. But every time we come together, we are in here on the shoulders of giants. Okay. Now I'm on page 263 and these were the six steps of the Oxford group movement that early AAs had used and adapted. Number one, complete deflation. Number two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Five, restitution. Remember I told you that amends is AA language, not Oxford group language. Oxford groupers say restitution and AAs say amends. 
Six, continued work with other alcoholics. And these were the six steps of the Oxford group movement that these alcoholics were using at the time. They also had the four absolutes that you had to be absolute, absolutely dedicated to becoming, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, absolute honesty, and absolute love. I'll give those again because I know you. some of you will ask me. What are the four absolutes of the Oxford group movement? Absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. And these drunks were having problem being absolutely anything but absolutely drunk. And so it was becoming more and more difficult for them to, to be absolutely anything. They just tr were trying to become sober. That's all they could handle at the time. Okay, the steps, the 12 steps are divided into four sections. Is knowing this going to help you recover or not knowing it going to Maybe it will enhance something. There's four sections to the steps. Number one is admission. Step one is admission. We are admitting. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. Admission. Steps two through seven. Submission. We are submitting our life to a power greater than ourselves. Admission, submission. The third section is restitution. Restitution is the third section. And in that section, we are, we are making amends to other people that we have harmed through our, uh, through our transgressions. And then steps 10, 11, and I'm going to go over that again, and then we'll move forward. Step one alone is admission. Steps two through seven, submission. Steps eight and nine, restitution. And steps 10, 11, and 12, our reconstruction. Let's move forward. If it does come up in Q&A, it comes up, but I hope I've covered that. Is that knowledge going to help you recover? Probably not, but it sometimes enhances things. And for some people, it can trigger something that helps them. And so I guess for some, it does help them. And in the steps, the other thing that is said, and so let's say it here, are you get right with yourself, right with God, and right with your fellow human being. Right with yourself, right with God, and right with your fellow human being. Okay, let's take a look at page 60 at the top of the page where it says, many of us exclaim, we're not going to go into step 12. As I said, there's no reason for me to read you the steps. You can read them on your own. My God, every time I look at the clock, it's 20 minutes later than I think it is. So I, I don't know why. I, all right, anyway, I don't want to waste more time. 
many of us exclaimed, what an order, I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. The only step you have to work perfectly is one. And I know how to say that in Italian, so I'm gonna show off. Passo primo. Passo primo is step one in Italian. And when I did the one for the Rimini group, I listened to Barbara, how she said it, passo prima, that's step one. Okay, we are not saints. Now, this line that we're, we're, you don't have to be perfect and we're not saints, a lot of people use that as a way of encouraging themselves to binge their freaking brains out. That is dumb. That's not what it's telling you. It's not saying to you, yeah, you don't have to worry about it. Go ahead and drink. Go ahead and eat. Go ahead and whatever you're doing. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is we're not saints. Don't beat yourself up if you're not exactly perfect. But the one step you have to be perfect in is one. Because if you're eating, you got to go back. If you're eating, you're not going to have a spiritual awakening as the result result of the steps. What does Dr. Silkworth tell us three times in the, in the doctor's opinion? Three times. Put the food down. He uses different words, but he is telling us, put the food down. Down. And what does Bill says, tell us in his story? At the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise for I showed signs of delirium tremens. And he says he never drank again. You're either drinking or you're not. You're either eating or you're not. The only step you have to work perfectly is paso prima, step one. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. How do we grow along spiritual lines? by doing the program and helping others. That's how we grow. We grow by giving it 100% of our effort. The principles, the principles are the steps that we have set down, our guides to progress. And this is one of the most misquoted lines in the book. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. If you're progressing, you're doing the best you can. This sentence, we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection, is not a license. It's not a hall pass to go out and eat Almond Joy Bars. It is far from it. It is the exact opposite of that. And a lot of people will use that sentence that we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection because what they want is a hall pass to go out and eat candy that they feel, well, I can just say, I can for progress, not perfection. And that's not what the book is saying. Our description of the alcoholic, what is the description of the alcoholic? That's the doctor's opinion in the first three chapters. What is the description of the alcoholic? The alcoholic has a physical allergy and it has a twist of the mind, an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. That's what it is telling me. The chapter to the agnostic, chapter four, and our personal adventures, that's the stories in the back of the book, 
before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. Now, we hear the ABCs at many, many of our meetings. Most meetings, and I told you the history last week of Morty Josephson, he was a Jewish guy, and his wife got a mimeographed copy from somebody in New York, and she got a mimeographed copy of the big book in 1938, 39, before it was printed. So this would be early 39, because the book was printed April 10th. And they met at the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles, California, about 10, 11 guys. And the wives were waiting outside for the husbands to be cured of alcoholism. Nobody had ever been to a meeting before. And Morty Joseph, he was at the front and he was the leader. He didn't know how to start a meeting. And he looked at the chapter and he says, well, this is how it works. Let's read some of that. And he read from the beginning of how it works through the ABCs. And they're still doing that today. Isn't that something that's something he did at his very first meeting? He had never been to a meeting of AA in his life, Morty Joseph. And he read from the beginning of how it works through the ABCs and they're still doing that today. But it says that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. What is an alcoholic? An alcoholic is somebody who is afflicted with an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind coupled with the mental blank spot. The mental blank spot is the built-in forgetter. And while that forgetter is in place, I will not remember what the food did to me a day, a week, or a month ago. I will not be able to bring to conscious mind with sufficient force what the food did to me. I will only be able to bring the conscious of consciousness of what it's going to do for me. I know very well that no matter what I'm facing, and I'm facing a downturn in business, I hate waking up in the morning alone. I hate going to bed alone. I, you know, there are things about my, I have a daughter doesn't speak to me for 10 years. I wish there were certain things about my life were different, but my brain, I have to work at my gratitude list because I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of people who care about me. The other day I put out there, I need a ride to the eye surgery center on Camelback in 51. And somebody said, I'll take you. And I said, gosh, is that going to be okay? Because it's like, I have to be there by six in the morning. You're going to have to be at my house by 530 because it's 20 minutes to the surgeries. She says, oh, that's no problem. I mean, how do, you know, where, did this, where does this come from? How do I rank this? How do I merit this? Well, here it is. I forget that this wall over here, I don't know if you can see it, this wall, it belongs to me. Yeah, I pay a mortgage, no question I pay the mortgage, but that this wall is mine. Is it different from the house I lived in with my wife and daughter? Yeah, it's much smaller. Yeah, I don't have a big, my backyard was an acre. My backyard was 89% of an acre in the backyard. That's pretty good. Now I have a little patio, but you know what? It keeps me dry in the rain. It keeps me cool in the summer, keeps me warm in the winter, and it's mine. And I thank God for it every day. I thank God for all of you. I thank God for all of you because without you, I can't recover. And without you, I'd look ridiculous sitting here every Saturday morning doing a big book study and nobody was listening. Wouldn't that be silly? Wouldn't that be crazy? They'd probably lock me up.
put that into my soul. Why is this repeated so many times? Well, one of my teacher friends told me that's called spiraling the information in education parlance. That's called spiraling the information. And why do they do that? Because without that understanding, I'm doomed. And how do I absorb that knowledge? I can't learn it by repeating it because my ego will discount it. My ego wants to be in charge. I'm very, very clear that the capital of Illinois is Springfield. The capital of New York is Albany. The capital of California is Sacramento. You get the picture, right? That's very simple. But when my ego gets involved, then amnesia gets involved because my confusion is equal to what my ego does not want me to see. Let me say that again, it's vital to our survival. My ego is not involved in the fact that the capital of Illinois is Springfield. There's no ego involved there. But when it comes down to letting God control my life and my food, my ego says, hey, wait a minute. What about me? Who the hell made you 700 pounds? Who the hell made you the butt of jokes? Who the hell made you break furniture and split your pants? And who the hell isolated you so that you went on the first date of your life when you were 35 years of age? Me, I did all those things. Now you're bringing this God into the whole thing? What about me, buddy? I'm the one that degradated you. I'm the one that shamed you. I'm the one that made Made you the butt of jokes. And my ego says, forget that stuff. I want to be in charge. I can ruin your life. Yeah, you're right, ego. You did ruin my life. You did make it so that I broke furniture. You did make it so that I got stuck in cars. You did amputate me from any type of love in my life or any type of female companionship. You're right, ego. I'll let you run the show from, but that's exactly the decision we keep making. Some of you might be laughing now. I can only see six or seven of you, but the bottom line is we have made decisions like that. And as absurd as it sounds, as cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs as it sounds, we have made those very decisions. So my confusion is equal to what my ego does not want me to see. And how do I absorb this information? By transmitting it. Most of you will forget what we've talked about five minutes after we're done here today. But if you wanna remember it and you wanna make it a part of you, you must transmit it to someone else. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. There is nothing in this world breeder or an alcoholic, and there is nothing in this world that is going to help you. I'm gonna mention some names now. John Candy, Jackie Gleason, Karen Carpenter, President William Howard Taft, Chris Farley, Mama Cass Elliott, 
What do all those people have in common? Fatty Arbuckle. What do they all have in common? They were at the top of their game. They were rich. James Gandolfini played Tony Soprano. He died in Italy in front of his 10-year-old kid. And every season of The Sopranos, he was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And all the suits and clothes that he wore the previous season had to be given away. He couldn't fit in them. And if you watch The Sopranos or you watch any of these shows or you listen to their music, some of them had the voices of angels. Karen Carpenter died at 34 years of age. She weighed 94 pounds at the time of her death. Her enzymes were so screwed up that her heart just stopped working. Bulimia and anorexia took her out. Mama Cass Elliot, Jewish girl, Mama Cass Elliot, 400 pounds at the London Palladium, died from morbid obesity. Would money have helped them? They had it. Would fame help them? They had it. Would accomplishment help them? They had it. There is nothing in this world to explain why you are a compulsive overeater and there is nothing in this world that is going to help you, which leads us to see that God could and would if he were sought. Do you have a God in your head? And I just finished chapter four, which I hate talking about more than any other chapter, but do you have a God in your head that is not going to be there for you? It's time to fire that God. Time to have a God in your heart and in your head and in consciousness, your neshama that you can rely on, that God could and would if he were sought. Are you on the struggle bus right now? Are you struggling with compulsive overeating? Are you struggling with bulimia? Are you struggling with anorexia? Take my challenge today. Walk to God. Walk to God. He'll run to you. Walk to God. How do you walk to God? By stop doing the behavior and start working the steps. When we are done with this today, we're going to have people that would be glad to help you. They are going to identify as sponsors. They are there to help you. You have people here that are running this, not me, people that are running this, they're going to stay afterwards and they're going to help you connect with sponsors. Listen to a vision for you in the morning after the second hour meeting every single day. After the second hour, at 10 minutes to the hour, there will be people that will identify as sponsors. They want to help you. Why do they want to help you? That is the only way that they can remain sober themselves. Trust God, change something, let it go, let it go. The, the Yiddish word for war is machloichas. Zichten machloichas, stop the war, stop it. Stop trying to do this by yourself on your own, your way, stop it. 
are you going in the direction that you want to go? Are you going, let's say north? Are you going north? If you're going east or west or worst south, if you're going in any other direction than north, let us take your hand. Let us guide you. Let us help you. We are here to help you. The book does most of the work. We just shine a light on it. That's all we do. We shine a light and we say, here's how we did this and here's how we did that. That's all it is. We are here to help you. There are people from different countries. There are people from different backgrounds, different races, different genders, different whatever you, whatever, I don't know, what do they, what does they say in Forrest Gump? Life's a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. The bottom line is trust enough so that if you try this, it will work. If it worked for me, I am a sick gutter, dumpster diving, compulsive overeater, back alley, compulsive overeater. I have been in the drive through windows, taking food through the window of my car with, with, with my last dollar that I needed to give to the landlord for rent. I have been in the drive through with, with one drive through under the, the wrappers and everything under the seat so no one could see that I was going from one to the other to the other to the other. And if I can recover, you can too. And there are many, many stories. There's 113 of us here today. And every one of you has a story and it's a wonderful, wonderful epic of recovery. It's a wonderful epic of your pain. It does. When I was a young boy, a young little boy, most of the adults that I knew, not all of them, but most of the ones that I knew were from concentration camps. And they would grab my face like this all the time. They were always grabbing my face like this. And they would say, live until you die. And they would shake my face and then they would like put me away and they would kiss me and give me candy. But the bottom line is live until you die. We're all gonna die, but we don't have to walk around dead. And when I'm in the food, I'm walking around dead. Live until you die means that we maximize every minute here. If you're eight or 80, there is a better way if you're on the struggle bus. There is a better way. Let us help you. It doesn't matter whether you're eight or 80. Live until you die means that you maximize every breath that you take. And the only way for me and people like me to maximize every breath that I take I must be emancipated completely from this overpowering urge to eat food that absolutely every time it has entered my mouth has triggered a response that has led me to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I no longer have to do that today. 
I no longer have to eat food that is going to hurt me. I no longer have to conduct myself in a way that is harmful and spits in the face of the munificent, kind, generous God that created my life so many years ago. And I wasted decades of my life getting to that conclusion, but here I am. And I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad to be able to say, I did nothing yesterday, nothing today. I've done nothing in years that I wouldn't want everybody to know. I, I had a very wonderful mentor many years ago. And he said to me, if you wanna see if you're in recovery, here's the way to judge it. He'd say, if everything you said today, everywhere you went, everything you ate, everything that went in and out of your mouth was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, which is the leading newspaper in Chicago. If everything you said, everything you did, everywhere you went, everything that came in and out of your mouth, are you gonna be ashamed of anything? And he said, if you're not ashamed, then you've had a day in recovery. And if you are ashamed of what went in and out of your mouth, then you have not led a life that's in recovery. And I found that to be very, very true because I didn't eat anything yesterday or go anywhere yesterday or say anything yesterday that I would die if it was on the front page of the Tribune. Okay. We're, I, I, unfortunately, we have to go very slow at this point in the book. I am quite pedantic in this part of the book because it is important that we get everything explained to the best of our ability, okay? Very, very important. We're gonna pick up next time on page 60, being convinced. I'm just writing that down for me so I don't forget. Okay, so what we're going to do now, and I can't...